I'm on the Boohoo website where, oh, they have 25% off everything, including sale items. Let's have a look, see, uh, see how cheap I can buy something for. I'm going to gonna click up I'd like a I'm gonna buy a dress for when we're allowed back out again I'm gonna sort it. it does have a very good filtering system very easy to use price low to high wow three pounds several dresses for three pounds a lot for four pounds wow you have to scroll down quite a long way until you get to the five pound mark Oof, and even further Wow, 75 items, 75 dresses for £5. Oh, more, more for even cheaper, £3.75. It's these kind of prices which have started to look a little worrying following allegations of appalling working conditions at some of Boohoo's suppliers' factories. The problem being, if an item of clothing is that cheap, someone is paying for it elsewhere. You walk into a shop and you're buying something that costs less than a fine, and you just think, how on earth can these companies sell these goods and make profit from it? And the fashion controversy doesn't end with Boohoo. There are hundreds of garment manufacturers which offer clothes which are incredibly cheap to the consumer, but potentially very expensive in environmental and social damage. The fallout from the Boohoo inquiry could therefore spread to many companies. How many of them are on top of the legislative development? How many of them have got relevant ESG expertise at board level? Um, how many have undertaken human rights impact assessments? Um, and how many of them have appropriately resourced legal and compliance functions? We have put the questions posed by Sam Eastwood, the lawyer in that clip, to several fashion retailers as we attempt to uncover how big the social and environmental cost of fast fashion really is. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human, And this is Not Your Normal Finance Show. But first, how has Boohoo got into this situation? Here's our retail correspondent, Alex Janio, to run us through the history. So, you know, Boohoo is a fast fashion company that's done very well, uh, particularly since lockdown. Uh, we've seen an enormous shift towards online shopping. And of course, Boohoo make very affordable clothes. However, the share price run uh, took a massive hit in July uh, when revelations came out in the Sunday Times about the alleged underpayment of workers and poor working conditions uh, in facilities in Leicester. Uh, and that article came after a report by an activist group called Labour Behind the Label, uh, which accused Boohoo of sourcing clothing from Leicester suppliers that had put workers at risk during the coronavirus pandemic. Boohoo launched a review uh, using a, an independent QC called Alison Levitt, uh, looking at a, supply, a sample of 62 uh, suppliers tier one and tier two this is important so tier one suppliers are suppliers of the companies which boohoo has direct contractual relationships with tier two companies are those which do manufacturing for tier one and crucially they do not have a direct legal relationship with boohoo um, which has clearly made it hard for boohoo to stay on top of their supply chain anyway september uh, the report is published, and it does reveal that there were many, many failings within the supply chain. Um, it's a 234-page report, Megan, and there's a lot to run through. But the bottom line is, amidst kind of failings amongst many of the companies on coronavirus controls, working hour records, payments, and indeed one confirmed finding of furlough fraud, there was an awareness of problems, but too little uh, was done, and the company admits as much. Uh, one thing that is disturbing is that some very senior directors were aware uh, of East Missing World at least last year. So Boohoo doesn't publish a list of its suppliers, unlike ASOS, which does. 
and you know, I, it is a red flag. And I think something to pick out from the report is that from the outside of the reviews, again, looking at 62 suppliers, they made what they thought was a straightforward request, namely to provide it with a list of Boohoo's tier one and tier two lesser suppliers. Such a list never materialized. And in the words of the report, it is now clear to us that it doesn't exist. So, you know, there's no good reason, in my view, why you wouldn't provide such as supplies, you know, if you weren't aware of who they are. And that's essentially what we can draw from this. Boohoo isn't on top of its supplies. And given the amount of devolution it has in terms of tier two and even tier three uh, supplies, it just says it, it just shows that a complete lack of grip um, and such for how something like this could happen. And, and, you know, and to go further, Boohoo has a lot of supplies uh, in Europe and Asia as well. So you know, it, it remains to be seen what they're doing in terms of staying on top of factions there when, you know, they've clearly failed in that respect in the UK. But lasting repercussions from this, um, from this inquiry and this, uh, these allegations as well, they don't really seem to be playing out in the numbers. Boohoo reported its, uh, its numbers last week and they're doing really well still. Yeah, interim profits were up 51%. And I, I spoke to uh, Boohoo's chief financial officer, Neil Cato, uh, after the figures came out. And, you know, I asked him, you know, basically, he was unable to say what percentage of the profits are generated from the supply chain that's come under scrutiny. But he did emphasise to me that Boohoo pays high prices for goods from Leicester. They could make get, uh, it could get cheaper uh, garments and, and products from elsewhere overseas. But being based in the UK and sourcing from Leicester uh, brings additional speed to market. They are investing uh, about 10 million in improving the supply chain. But yeah, it, it just it does seem that for all the the noise on ESG consumers really don't seem bothered and, and the shares have had they just have recovered but Boohoo's issues started long before the sunday times allegations were raised earlier this year here's a clip from the channel 4 dispatches program from 2016 every order comes through their burnley warehouse Boohoo's website says the warehouse is the driving force of the company and their family sentiment creates an exciting, ambitious and supportive work ethic. But would all of their 1,000 warehouse workers agree? My name is Kieran Hardman. Uh, I currently work for a fashion retailer, boohoo.com. I've been there approximately two years now. I on the shop floor and I've moved um, on up to team leader where I look after about 150 staff. Kieran had long been worried about the working conditions at Boohoo. So a few months ago, he contacted dispatchers. Well, I'm getting people on a regular basis um, complaining um, about the conditions uh, within Boohoo. People are struggling. Some of the guys really need help, which is um, how I come to, to be meeting you now. All I'd heard about this company was what an amazing success story it was. One of the shining lights in the north of England. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's becoming busier, but some of the things that have gone on within the last few years um, have just been absolutely horrendous, and it needs to change. And, John, you've been looking into the big boohoo saga for a while now as well. Well, I mean, I say you say looking into it, it was something that I, I stumbled across. I mean, there, there had been, as you say, allegations... Uh, about some of the conditions in its supplies factories for quite some time. But, but, it, but it struck me when I was actually at a wedding uh, just before Christmas last year and I met someone who was a, a senior buyer, uh, new look. 
Uh, and uh, we were having a chat about um, onshoring, offshoring of, of, of garment manufacture, and they said they'd bought every, taken everything offshore. They had used the UK because they were finding it really hard to um, enforce compliance across their supply chain in the UK, and specifically Leicester was mentioned at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, being aware of, of, of where Boohoo was cited and located, I brought it up. And, yeah, she, she suggested that Boohoo's factories were perhaps not all they, uh, or Boohoo's suppliers' factories were not all they should be. Um, so, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a very interesting conversation. The word mafia came up mm. uh, as to how these factories are run. And so, yeah, we, we, we suddenly started to think, you know, well, Boohoo had been touted as this environment, you know, this ESG-friendly company, you know, was there perhaps more to this than uh, the... Than, than, sort of certain certain people in the industry were suggesting. Mm, and that's the part of the Boohoo thing which I think adds obviously the allegations of slave-like working conditions is horrific. But the fact that Boohoo has been touted as a good, ethical, ESG-compliant, the S of ESG being social company, it's just absurd that it was allowed to continue without there being any investigations, especially as this has been going on for years, the, the concerns about working conditions. Indeed, and, you know, the, the, uh, the report that they uh, subsequently uh, commissioned, the independent report into their, their supply chain, revealed lots of serious problems. Um, and so then you start to wonder, you know, so, so this company was being scored highly on, on the S factor, uh, and yet when somebody actually took the time to, to investigate this in detail, they found that it was nowhere near what it should be to, mm. to, to really qualify, uh, you know, on that front as, a, as, as something that was ESG-friendly. So, so then you start to think, you know, what's going on with ESG scores? How, you know, they, they seem to be plucked out of thin air. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, this comes down a lot to fund managers and, and whether or not they're actually doing proper due diligence into these companies. If they're... If they're saying their fund is ESG friendly, or some of them they're marketing them as specific ESG funds, and they've got boohoo in it. I mean, the social thing, maybe yeah, that required a little bit of digging, but the environmental part. I mean, everyone knows fast fashion is not good for the environment, and the governance part. You didn't have to dig very far to realise that it's not a particularly well governed company when your founder and chief executive is buying a company, pretty little thing, which was founded by that same founder's sons. It's, uh, it doesn't really tick the boxes for, for good governance. No, rela- related party transactions are, uh, are never a great thing. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the E uh, in ESG, environmental, you know, when it comes to fast fashion, you've got, you, you've got to be scratching your head to think how, how any fast fashion company could qualify. In fact, you know, modern um, fashion, full stop, whether you know whether it's the fastest fashion, the boohoos of this world, or you know, something a little bit more mundane, you know, all of these these items of clothing are, you know, they're essentially throwaway these days. You know, it's very rare to find, you know, clothing that is manufactured to last. It's yeah. not the way the industry works anymore. Yeah. So, so clothing, full stop, has big E question marks hanging over Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And when you're buying a dress for £5, I mean, that's never something that is going to be a long-lasting item. <laughs> People are buying those to buy, buy twice. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, you know, and I think, you know, naming no names, uh, we may get onto them another time. But, you know, I, I actually see some companies making, you know, essentially, you know, fast fashion quality garments and charging very high prices for them these days. Essentially, the Why can't Jean- we mention no names? Oh, at Topshop. Topshop. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my kids spend a fortune there, and, and it, it blows my mind because, as I say, I look at the clothing and I think this is low quality uh, at high price, and, and, and it's the brand. So, it's, you know, brand allows people to get away with a lot. But the thing about Topshop is it's not even the brand because they don't have 
it's not it's not really a brand. They don't emblazon it with Topshop. It's the I don't know what it is. It's something about the stores. I don't know how Topshop can continue to get away with such absurd prices when the quality of their clothes is just shocking. Mm. I, I, I quite agree. My wallet feels the pain. Um, but, but, you know, as I say, generally speaking, I think that just highlights the fact that this is an industry-wide issue. Mm, absolutely. The other thing that struck me um, is, is, you know, despite all these allegations, um, Boohoo has put out some extraordinary numbers, mm. uh, numbers that would have been generated in the period after it came to light that the, 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 its supply chain was not as squeaky clean as, as one would have hoped it would have been. Um, and that kind of perhaps says something about the British buyer of, of clothing, you know, yeah. people that are buying fast fashion... Perhaps they just don't care. I think for the people who shop at Boohoo, price is more important than anything else because otherwise, why would you? I mean, it's definitely they're definitely not looking for quality. So if price is, is number one, then maybe the environmental issues surrounding fast fashion and the kind of clothes that Boohoo is producing, they just they just aren't important. Um, especially if you look at the way people can now pay for clothes on Boohoo, you can buy now, pay later, or you can split the payments. I mean, these are not expensive items, but if the people who are shopping there, I mean, a lot of young people, are having to split the payments of a £20 jumper, it suggests that maybe price is most important rather than anything else. Well, I think that's probably true. You only have to look at the uh, you know, people coming out of Primark with uh, you know, the, about 10, 10 of their big brown paper bags, mm. not plastic. Um, but, you know, no, no, it's fascinating. I actually overheard a conversation on a train one evening uh, between two young women, and they were actually talking about fast fashion and Boohoo and ASOS specifically and they said and I did ask them what they meant afterwards um, but they said they wouldn't buy from Boohoo because uh, because they didn't think it was environmentally friendly enough whereas they would buy from ASOS that's interesting uh, yeah I thought it was really interesting which is mm. why I sort of butted into their conversation yeah but, what but, was their reasoning why did they think ASOS was more environmentally friendly I mean they couldn't give a really you know <laughs> uh, well researched answer but this was this was the feeling that they had yeah I mean I would agree I think the feeling that I get from Boohoo is that it's a little bit grotty and ASOS is a bit more responsible but that's probably just a marketing thing that's the way that they have selected their brand and actually it's clearly something that's working for Boohoo. That super-duper cheap is working the numbers where ASOS has stumbled and maybe trying to look a little bit more responsible, a little bit more high-class isn't actually working for them because they're not doing very well anymore. It's not what the market wants. No, absolutely. And then, But then on the other end of the scale, I mean, you see all these sort of boutique brands were popping up which were trying to be more environmentally friendly and, and slow fashion rather than fast fashion, and they're struggling too because it's just not what people want. No, uh, uh, absolutely. I don't think so. You know, which is why you have to think as well there is perhaps a bit of a disconnect between the ESG that gets spoken about so much in investing circles mm. uh, and what the rest of the world actually thinks. Mm, definitely. But, of course, you know, these fast fashion companies have, have grown very quickly and, you know, that's, that's attractive to investors. Um, and the problem for Boohoo uh, and a lot of these companies is how they've actually managed that growth. And it's perhaps why, you know, sometimes uh, the, the, the sort of supply chain has, has run away from them uh, and that they can't control it perhaps as well as they would like to. Um, it's, it's a really serious issue and it's something I spoke to Phil Oakley about. Where, where it gets more interesting is when you take a, take a step back and you you just you just get back to basics with this and and try and try and think how a company grows and you know if you're an investor in Boohoo you look at these numbers coming through you think they're absolutely fantastic and you have a big smile on your face and right and rightly so but I think 
a lot of a lot of people don't actually realise how difficult it is to actually create the conditions for that growth. You know, the amount of work that has to go behind the scenes in, you know, in, in your supply chain and, you know, investing in warehousing, fulfilment, logistics, and co coping with growth is, is a real challenge for businesses. And whilst the numbers suggest that the company is doing pretty well on this, and if you actually look at the investments that are in the pipeline, um, this is a company that is going to do about 1.6 billion in sales this year. And they reckon that in two years time, it's going to have the capability to, to be able to do about 3.6, you know, from its, from its capacity. But then, then you sort of get back to the issue that's reared its head a couple of months ago about, about its supply chain. And you think, well, okay, this is, this is where things get interesting. And you think, you know, has has the company dropped the ball here in that it's been growing so quickly that its supply chain hasn't been able to keep up the suppliers have then subcontracted because um the company went into a great length this week about how it's going to try and sort out its supply chain and subcontractors were were to the fore and this is where you know the sunday times pounces and you know starts writing its articles and and yeah to be fair it wasn't the the, the sunday times article that was the first uh source of these these concerns who has been growing through these concerns that have that have existed for several several years you know this uh, it was, it's, surprising, oh, yeah. it's surprising that it took so long as far as i'm concerned for this to become uh the issue the hot potato that it recently has and for boohoo to then turn around and start addressing them and saying well you know we didn't we didn't know anything was going on because the concerns had been raised uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it doesn't take, you know, it's not difficult, you know. I mean, you walk into a shop and you're buying something that costs less than a fiver, and you know, you can apply, you can apply the same issue to, you know, walking into the supermarkets and walking into places like Primark, and you just think, how on earth can these companies sell these goods and make profit from it? The Boo Inquiry is very interesting, but reading the entire 254-page document is no mean feat. Not only is it long, but it's also full of legalese, which is not particularly easy to understand. Alex spoke to Sam Eastwood, who's a partner in law firm Mayor Brown's litigation and dispute resolution team, to find out what the Boohoo saga means for the wider garment industry. I suppose I would, I would draw a number of lessons and then and then reflect on challenges challenges for boohoo and for companies in in terms of lessons companies in all industries are going to have to come to terms with an increased focus on human rights in this case the focus is labor standards but human rights obligations extending beyond their own operations uh, and that focus comes from ngos um, members of the public or consumers um, and investors and, and that focus is going to continue, and it, and, and it will be reinforced by new legislation, which will make it mandatory for companies to undertake supply chain due diligence. So I suppose lesson number one is there's going to be more of a focus on supply chain management generally. Uh, lesson number two is, is there will be more transparency. There will be more pressure on companies to disclose what they're doing, how they're doing it, and that will enable investors to make meaningful assessments of companies' compliance programmes. I, I think there'll be more transparency also in terms of how 
companies respond to crises. Um, what we've seen here in the case of Boohoo, it is a fairly transparent response. I think it was necessary, but a transparent response to to a crisis. I think lesson number three is is, is a close read of of the report, all 254 pages of it, um, uh, and it is worth reading. Um, Self-evidently, Boohoo's governance and compliance processes were inadequate. There was a report, um, an inspection back in December 2019, so some seven months before the Sunday Times article, in which the board were told uh, that one of the suppliers had the worst working conditions that I've seen in the UK and is not safe for workers. So Boohoo has now certainly declared that they will be addressing the issues with the remediation program, and, and the details are worth, worth um, reflecting on. So there are going to be new non-executive board appointments, including board directors with ESG expertise. I think that's important. Um, there will be more board oversight, so supply chain management will be a standing item on all board meetings. Uh, there will be senior appointments responsible for supply chain management, uh, independent auditing, a program of that, and more transparency. And those are all matters that other companies in the garment sector, certainly, but in other areas, are going to have to reflect on. Um, and the challenge for companies now is how many of them are on top of the legislative developments that I referred to earlier? How many of them have got relevant ESG expertise at board level? Um, how many have undertaken human rights impact assessments, uh, which will become mandatory? Um, and how many of them have appropriately resourced legal and compliance functions? And that's a real, that's a real test in the current environment where costs are, are, are really key, uh, but um, resourcing of legal and compliance is, is, is all the more important. And, and then finally, how many companies are in a position to report in some detail on their human rights program? And I think all of those challenges are, are significant. So we have put those questions to a big list of companies in the fashion industry. First respond was H&M, which is actually often held up for its strong ethical standards. On the environmental side of things, the company has invested in recycled material and it now offers a clothes trading service. That's something that a lot of the industry is trying out and trying to reduce waste. Uh, it's somewhat ironic that on the day we sent out our requests, the company was fined £32 million for illegal surveillance of employees, but in its response to us, H&M did say that it complies with the high human rights standards. The board has put together of competences and combined experience to support strategic decisions for a broad variety of topics, including ESG. We also have four employee representatives on the board. Our due diligence work to identify human rights risks and impact are continuously ongoing, and our approach is informed by the UN Guiding Principle of Business and Human Rights. We work to integrate responsibility for ESG into our operations, and we also have over 250 staff that works on sustainability questions full-time. Associated British Food, which owns Primark, was also quick to get back to us. Primark was held up as the poster company for bad ethical practice a few years ago because of concerns around working conditions in factories in China or in Bangladesh. Consumers were quite rightly questioning how the company could possibly make money from its super cheap clothes without using sweatshops which were running on ridiculously low wages. Primark addresses its geographical location in its responses to us. 
Primark's ethical trade and environmental sustainability team is made up of more than 120 experts who work closely with our suppliers and their factories to help them meet the standards set out in our code of conduct. The team is largely based in the countries where our products are manufactured, such as Bangladesh and China. Many of the team are local to the country they are based in, so they understand the local language and culture. They bring together a range of knowledge and expertise. The company also made reference to Boohoo. Primark don't source any garments from Leicester and have not done so since 2015. Primark does not own any factories. In fact, 98% of the factories making products of Primark also manufacture for other brands. We are very selective about who we work with. To make it onto Primark's approved factory list, each factory is vetted to internationally recognised standards set out in the Primark Code of Conduct and must commit to meeting the code as a condition of doing business with us. And Inditex, the largest fashion retailer in the world, which owns brands like Zara and Pull and Bear, pointed us in the direction of its annual report in response to our questions. Production of ethically produced clothing is part of the company's business model. Inditex also lays out how it contributes to the UN Sustainable Development Goals by having a good environmental practice and a strong ethical culture all the way down its supply chain. So it was good to hear back from some of those companies. Um, but as we discussed earlier, these things don't really seem to matter that much for consumers, and they certainly haven't in the case of Boohoo. It continues to do extremely well, um, despite the fact that it's definitely got some failings. So so does it matter, and should it matter, that these companies are ticking all the right boxes for for sustainability, environmental sustainability, and social responsibility? Yeah, I think it does. Um, you know, even if their customers don't care, these are businesses that have an impact on society and the environment. Um, and so, you know, it's their responsibility to be making sure that, that what they do does as little damage as possible, preferably none. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's on them. Um, you know, companies have to make money in a responsible and sustainable way. Making money by, by doing harm is just, just not what the world wants to see anymore. Certainly not what investors want to see either. Mm. Whether the customer cares or not, A, it's the right thing to do. B, actually, from an investment perspective, uh, it's what, what the industry increasingly wants to see. Mm, and do you think because the industry increasingly wants to see it, that may eventually tip into the consumer side of things as well like we've seen with with responsible farming or more responsible farming and vegetarian food as well where there has been a shift in the last year or so in in companies being more responsible and also providing more vegetarian vegan vegan food um because there has been a tipping point where consumers now align with the the demands of of the world yeah, I do think that um, consumers are increasingly uh, aware of this, you know, albeit um, you know, as, uh, en masse, it seems to be something that happens very slowly. Mm. Um, and yeah, you do get these, these moments where, where these moments where sort of a realisation dawns that actually this, this kind of shopping is, is, is causing damage. And, you know, it might take another scandal for, for it to accelerate a little bit more. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I do think it's, uh, it's something that, that is increasingly uh, taking hold, just perhaps a little bit more slowly than, than some people would like. Yeah. And, but then the, the other issue is that is fashion ever going to be, or fashion in this way, ever going to be particularly responsible? Because, I mean, they can tick the UN sustainability goals as much as they like. And they can monitor their factories and they can vet their suppliers. But fashion is bad for the environment. That's the bottom line. 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's a great Stacey Dooley documentary, which is about fast fashion. Um, you know, and, and actually, you, you saw in that some of the destruction that, that, that these... Uh, these production methods cause. Cool. So, for example, if you want to, um, you know, make a pair of jeans for, you know, 10, 20 pounds, you know, that, that, that is cotton. That cotton has to be farmed cheaply. Cotton is very water intensive. Uh, and the reasons in which it's farmed are increasingly um, suffering from water shortages. Water is a very, very valuable commodity. So, you know, my worry is, yeah, you, you're right. You, you use the word box ticking. Um, and, and, yeah, companies can tick boxes, tick ESG boxes. We saw Boohoo do it. They ticked mm. ESG boxes. Turns out they... You know that's all it was. Yeah. Um, so, so you're right. Is is this then an industry that, by its very nature, can never be um, as environmentally friendly as as uh, as perhaps investors would like and their customers would like it to be one day? And, and the world uh, needs it to be to a certain extent. And the world needs it to be. You know, we need water more than we need cheap jeans. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So, so I do. I do think that uh, perhaps there is something structurally wrong with fast fashion as a business model. And maybe the more and more people who realise that, the less and less attractive an industry that's going to become. Yeah, but then people are a bit lazy when it comes mm. to shopping. And people, you know, like to fill their bags up and go home with, as I said, those three or four big brown Primark bags, you know, to feel like they've had a good day shopping. Um, but as, as, a, as, a, as a lifestyle choice and what it means for society, I, I do think there has to be some kind of change. Yeah, and it does sound, from some of the responses that we got, that, that we heard earlier, that some of these companies are moving or at least trying to move in the right direction. Yeah, not all of them, perhaps. No, no, and the companies that we didn't hear from, even though we asked them for requests, I mean, ASOS, Arcadia, which owns Topshop, as we mentioned earlier, that is disappointing because they are the companies that are really in the spotlight of, of these issues. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we need to hear more from them. Boohoo is clearly a company that attracts huge interest for many UK investors. The outlook for the company and whether it should have a place in your portfolio is something I also discussed with Phil on last week's Alpha podcast. Hopefully, for the company's sake, it can draw a line under this. I think it's reacted in a quite honest and commendable way. It's put its hands up and it said, you know what, there are things here that we... We'd rather not see, and we're going to try and we're going to we're going to put them right. I think that's good. Head to the podcast page of the website to have a listen to that, where you will also find Dave Baxter's conversation with Blake Hutchins about dividends and the outlook for British companies. I would implore UK investors not to be too downbeat on our companies. Thanks to all our guests today, and thanks to you for listening to Not Your Normal Finance Show. Remember, if you want to get in touch with suggestions for topics you'd like us to delve into, you can email us at icpodcast at ft.com. Mm-hmm.